everybody. Welcome to session 95 of the Behavioral Observations Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by HRIColorado.com. And whether you live in Colorado or Connecticut or anywhere else in between, their mission is to find you your dream job. So for a confidential chat about opportunities in your neck of the woods, go to HRIColorado.com. Session 95 is also brought to you by the University of Cincinnati Online. The UC Online program can be a rewarding way to advance your career. Gain the cutting-edge knowledge and skills so you can help others, all while increasing your career options and earning potential. For more information, please visit behavioranalysisuc.online for more information. Okay, I'm joined by two guests today. Dr. Lauren Kryzak and Celia Heyman are on the podcast to discuss the ever-important topic of supervision. Last spring, this dynamic duo presented a fantastic workshop on supervision at the New Jersey ABA conference, and they are here today to share some of the highlights of their approach to mentoring would-be BCBAs. If this sounds like something you want to learn more about, they'll be reprising this workshop at the upcoming Autism New Jersey Conference, which is taking place on October 17th and 18th in Atlantic City. I'll have details for this event in today's show notes, along with other references and resources we discussed. You know what else will be in today's show notes? Details on the upcoming first annual Tate Behavioral Conference, which is happening on October 25th in Springfield, Mass. There are four speakers at this event, myself, Ryan O'Donnell, and Drs. Megan Miller and Kim Barons. You know, this is probably the first ABA conference in history in which 75% of the speakers have their own podcast. You know, I doubt this stat is meaningful in any way, shape, or form, but it just occurred to me as I was preparing these opening remarks. Anyway, we'll end the day with a live interview of Dr. Kim, and a good time will be had by all, so I hope to see you there. All right, one last bit of housekeeping. During this conversation, we had some Skype hiccups here and there, so you may notice that uh, at times, but it shouldn't detract too much from the listening experience. Uh, But I just want to mention that at the outset. So having said all that, please enjoy this fun conversation with Lauren and Celia. Welcome to the Behavioral Observations Podcast. Stimulating talk for today's behavior analysts. Now, here's your host, Matt Sicoria. Dr. Lauren Kryzak and Celia Heyman, thanks for joining me today on the Behavioral Observations Podcast. How are you guys doing? Matt, doing great. Thank you, Matt. Well, thanks for joining me today. Uh, I've got a uh, uh, an agenda of sorts here based off of the the really cool presentation that you guys did at New Jersey AVA uh, a little while back on supervision. Seems like you guys put together quite a quite an informative training there, and I think it would be very helpful for our listeners who are either contemplating supervision or are providing supervision uh, or even receiving supervision. So, uh, thanks for taking some time out of your day to join me, Lauren. I know you're in a state of sleep deprivation being home with a with a new baby. And Celia, you're playing hurt today too, uh, nursing a post-ABAI cold. <laughs> so I really appreciate you guys soldiering through this uh, in uh, perhaps less than ideal circumstances. And uh, so let's take it from there. So um, let's take a minute to let you guys introduce yourselves to the audience and tell uh, the story about how you all got in the to ABA and what you're doing now. So, um, Laura, why don't you, uh, why don't you take it away here? Sure. Um, 
So I graduated from undergraduate with a degree in psychology and quickly realized that there weren't a ton of job opportunities for that qualification. So I ended up as a research assistant at a local hospital where we were uh, collecting DNA samples um, and doing some testing, um, ADI and the ADOS with families that have multiple children with autism, trying to find or investigate genetic um, influences and links that might uh, contribute to the genetic causes of autism. And when I was doing my interviews, I had to get a background of their therapies and education that their child children had received. And almost all of them reference receiving ABA at some point of their paths to where they were at that point. And being a, you know, 23 year old research assistant, I had no idea what that meant. So I kind of embarrassedly kind of asked some of these families, you know, what, what is that? What does that mean? Um, and they explained it to me. And as I realized I wanted to go back to school, I started looking into different graduate programs. Um, I'm in New York City, so there are were, are a few ABA programs. Um, so I did some research, looked into them, and really started my PhD in behavior analysis before behavior analysis. I had taken a learning class as an undergraduate and liked it. And that was basically the extent of my exposure to any ABA. Um, but once I started my coursework and graduate program, I also started doing ABA as a therapist. Um, and it just really stuck with me. It really made sense to me. It was intuitive. It was systematic. I really liked the data portion of it. It it just spoke to the type A personality that I have of organization and everything. So I kind of continued with my coursework in behavior analysis, as well as <clears throat> doing more therapy. I became a BCBA. Um, became a supervisor, became a director, which is where I am today. I um, work as the chief clinical officer, actually, of Above and Beyond Learning Group, where we provide uh, home-based ABA instruction for learners with autism throughout the state of New Jersey. I see. And uh, uh, where did you end up uh, doing your, your graduate training? You said you did it in New York City? Yeah, so all the PhD programs in New York City are actually through the Graduate Center of New York, and then they are housed at various uh, city college campuses. So my coursework was actually at Queens College. Uh, it's the learning, it was actually, I think it's, it, it is different now, but it was called the Learning Processes and Behavior Analysis Program um, through the Graduate Center. And um, yeah, so sort of Queens College, sort of the Graduate Center. I see. Uh, very cool. Uh, Celia, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, well, first, thank you so much for this opportunity, Matt. I'm, I'm usually on the other side of the table being a listener. Yeah, you so are. You are like I, I think you and, a, and like a handful of people have been uh, uh, listening to the podcast since the get go, I think. if I'm. Yeah, I um, you know, so it's really humbling to be on this side of the round table with you. Um, but yeah, I'm having a time of my life. Um, I, I actually got into ABA a little bit later in my life. Um, 
due to certain unplanned circumstances. Um, I was actually, uh, my first career was in finance and international business. Um, and I was introduced to ABA because my son was diagnosed with autism when he was 18 months old. Um, and at the time I was working really long hours and just traveling between Princeton and New York City. Um, we had a nanny at the time and uh, she wasn't really able to generalize the skills um, or you know, just understand what was going on during um, sessions. And so as a family, my husband and I thought, you know, this is not really working for us. Um, so I decided to take some time off uh, from work and I ended up staying with my son for about four years um, at home. And I went to all those conferences you can imagine, um, joined all the groups you can imagine. And I was probably maybe one of those ladies that Pat Fryman talked about, you know, the lady with the pink sweater. Yes. Um, I might not be as boisterous or um, uh, as the pink lady, but I, I'm sure I, I was one of those mothers. Um, and I was just really empowered by the science. Um, I learned discrete trial instructions. I learned NET. Um, I learned everything that my BCBA taught me. And um, if I didn't get such an amazing person and practitioner, I might not be speaking with you guys today. Um, so I was really empowered by the science, and um, I started doing programs with my son. I started date, uh, taking data for her, for the staff, and I was really hooked. Um, oh, they and must then, have loved you, by the way, uh, on, well, on the clinical side in terms of being so yeah. supportive and, and willing to carry through that therapy uh, kind of off the clock, if you will. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, when they left, um, my son continued to learn. It wasn't only during sessions that he was learning. He was learning every moment that he was not sleeping. So and, you know, his performance and his outcome really show for it. Um, so after four years at home, he was in a good place. I was in a good place. Then I went back to work for early intervention, basically with the people that I knew, with my network of people. Can I? Can um, I? Can that, I? Hold, sure. Hang on one sec. I, I have to. Uh, I have to ask about this. So you said your son was diagnosed at 18 months. Yes. Um, that is, you know, obviously we're getting better at diagnosing autism earlier and earlier. But uh, he's a he's a teenager now, right? He's 16 years old, and we were lucky because he's a second child. So you know, they always tell parents not to compare. But we had some experience um, having our second child, and he was um, not speaking, um, didn't have his words. And but there were also other markers that I noticed that weren't right, and I and I was comparing to you know his development with my older son. Um, but I think that in the long run, that did us a lot of good actually, yeah. and we we got him services. You know, as a result, you know, very early on. Yeah, so, it just seems like a yeah. You know, given that. The, the the time, even though it's not, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not too long ago, but from an awareness of these sorts of things, it, it's it's a generation ago. And so the yeah. fact that, that you guys got that diagnosis so young and were able to basically, you know, put the hammer down as far as services are concerned uh, is, is just amazing. So I, yeah. I just didn't mean to interrupt you, but at the same time, I want to just make that observation. Uh, so yeah, thanks we for sharing lucky, that. We were one of the lucky ones, and I... And that's one of the reasons why I feel like I'm, I'm so lucky and fortunate to be um, helping out in this field because I certainly, you know, received amazing support from, you know, the community and our field. So, um, yeah. And then when I went back to work, I worked for early intervention, uh, New Jersey early intervention for four years. 
And then after that, I said, you know, I want to continue doing this. Do I go into special education or do I go into ABA? And by that time, all my network of people and professionals and colleagues, they were all in behavior analysis. Um, and they were very encouraging and said, you know what, you need to come, you need to cross over to this side. And so I did, um, went back to get another degree. Um, I went to Rider University to get my master's. Um, I actually got my certification not too long ago, uh, 2014. So I'm sort of a newly minted, somewhat BCBA. Um, oh, Lauren's I always, shaking her head. <laughs> but it's I really mean, safe. <laughs> she knows the demographics of the amount of newly minted BCBAs in the past like two to three years. And I think she's just not realizing how long ago. It might seem like yesterday, but it was actually not yesterday. That's right. The, the hockey stick curve in the graph was still kind of like uh, at, at the at the uh, up the beginning of the upswing, where now exactly. it's you know it's got the, the 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 pedal to the metal. Are you looking for a new job, but you're overwhelmed with all the emails that you're getting from various ABA agencies? What if there was someone who was in your corner and could help you find the perfect job placement? Well, that person exists. Barbara Voss has been working as a recruiter for over 30 years, and her company, HRIC, specializes in placing BCBAs in permanent full-time positions throughout the United States. Barbara has been placing BCBAs since 2011, so she knows our business, and she offers personalized service to any BCBA looking for a new position. She also helps companies looking to hire BCBAs, too. Here are just some of the things Barbara can help you with. She can provide information about salary ranges in different markets across the country. She can help you write your resume. She can coordinate and prepare you for the interview process and even help negotiate the right salary for you. And best of all, there are no charges to any candidate for all of these services. When you are ready to make a change and want to work with someone who will listen to you and understand what you need in a new position, contact Barbara at HRIC. To schedule a confidential discussion, head over to hricolorado.com. Again, that's hricolorado.com, and hit the contact button to connect with Barbara. You won't be disappointed. Yeah. And um, going back for my doctoral degree right now at Capella University. So I'm still learning. I feel like, um, you know, being a lifelong learner, it's going to keep me young. So it's all good. <laughs> so here we are. Awesome. Um what else have I not told you? Um, oh, my work. So I'm a clinical manager um, at Above the Beyond Learning Group, and I feel very fortunate um, to have mentors in my career and in my life. Um, it's really important, and I always encourage the young people to continue seeking out mentorship. Um, I'm also working uh, for another uh, lady, uh, Dr. Beth. Glassberg, and she's been um, in the field, oh God, for a long time. I think she was like the 321st BCBA in the, in the world. Um, so she, she was certified back in 2000, right? Yeah. I think that was the first batch. So it's, I'm glad to have her in my life as well. Um, I'm also teaching um, and as an instructor at Capella University. So that's a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that basically wraps up what I do. So what do you do in yeah. your spare time? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you're, you're getting your doctor. ABA you're study te group. You're teaching. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what? Let's talk about the ABA study group because you, you deserve a ton oh. of credit for 
helping carry so many folks over the finish line. So take a minute to tell people who aren't familiar with the ABA study group what uh, what it is and what you guys do. Yeah. Um, so ABA Brag study on yourself group. a little bit. <laughs> well, it's not just me. It's a whole lot of people. Um, and it's a great group. It's a, it's a Facebook studying group. And when I actually stumble across it, just by chance, I remember I was in France, my kids, uh, they, they went out skiing, they ski all the time, and I and my mother-in-law did not have any English um, television. So I was so bored, and this is back in January 2015, and I'm just going through my Facebook, and I stumble across something called ABA Study Group, and at that time, um, they had about 300 people, 300 members, um, and it was started by um, my friend and colleague, Ashley Michaels, who basically in the process of studying and preparing for the exam. So she created that group. Um, and again, when I stumbled across it, it was 300 members. And now we have over 32,000 members worldwide. Uh, we have 11 admins for the group. Um, and it's really been awesome. We've created um, a really safe place, a collaborative and humble place for individuals preparing for the exam. Uh, we have a lot of resources and mock exams uh, available that are free. And there are also, um, you know, very, a lot of trivia questions posted. Um, it's really a great place for individuals to connect with others to study together. Because as, as you know, uh, those who are preparing for the exam, um, when you do this and you, you do this journey on your own, it can get pretty, uh, pretty challenging and it can be very demotivating um, at times. So studying with colleagues, um, definitely, it, it's a great thing. Yeah, I think you guys deserve just a ton of credit. And I, I can't believe it's over 30,000 members. That That's just remarkable. And uh, yeah, so um, yeah, big thanks to, to you and all the rest of the admins who put all that, uh, all that time into that group. It's, it's, it's really, really helpful. So um, all right, cool. Thanks for giving that background, folks. Uh, that's uh, that's that. It's always fun to hear the stories about how people kind of stumbled into this this funny line of work we found ourselves in. So uh, let's turn the uh, the page here and talk a little bit about the talk that you guys gave at New Jersey ABBA uh, or workshop rather. Um, it it, it kind of went into a couple of different directions and. You know, just kind of looking at the PowerPoint uh, and, the, and the handout, you know, it seemed to be like uh, you guys talked about supervision uh, as occurring along a, a number of themes. And tell me if I have this right. So there's, uh, yeah, you, you focus on discrimination training, pro- programming for generalization, concept formation through derived relational responding, and using precision teaching uh, in the course of preparing BCBA candidates. So um, let's start by kind of t- uh, taking these themes kind of one by one. So uh, who, who, who'd like to start here? Um, I, I guess I, I can jump in. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah I was going to say that, you know, when I, when I uh, approached Lauren of this idea, it was a different idea at the time. Um, you know, I was very much interested in looking at using behavior analysis to teach behavior analysis. And I share some thoughts with her and Lauren's like, you know what, let's reach out to more people. Let's reframe this. Um, 
in the scope of supervision. So at that time, I felt a little uncomfortable. I was like, ooh, ooh, I wasn't thinking about that. But, you know, I tell myself, you know, if I'm feeling uncomfortable, that means that's an opportunity to learn. So go ahead and listen to your clinical director and do what she says. So um, I just want to give that background a little bit. It was yeah. it was a little bit reframed uh, through her um, through her view and guidance. I, see. I was really yeah. just preparing Celia for her beginning to uh, be in her doctoral program for what advisors do, which is you send them an idea and they say sounds great, and then they redline the whole thing and yes. change it all around and send yes. back and say great, yeah. do it this way instead. Yeah. So. And then an, another background before Lauren goes into the nitty gritty of it, because um, she has a great, great perspective and, you know, tying everything together. Um, you know, I, my thoughts were, you know, in supervision, behavioral skills training is such a ubiquitous method to teaching, right, complex skills. Um, and as I was reading all these articles published in the behavior analysis, um, sorry, behavior analysis and practice issue 2016, on supervision, and one of the articles that Turner et al. mentioned was that, you know, despite the effectiveness of BST, there are no current studies that have actually evaluated BST to teach individuals pursuing the BCBA credential. Um, so Lauren and I thought, you know, it's likely that supervisees should have a treatment package to acquire these skills as a competent behavior analyst. So we said, well, let's look at all those teaching procedures that are conceptually systematic that we know and that we use every day with our learners. Let's reframe those procedures in the scope of supervision. And, and that really led us to looking at, you know, discrimination training, precision teaching, programming and for generalization, teaching concept formation, and considering relational frame theory in teaching behavior analysis, which is actually um, what I'm hoping to explore in my dissertation project. So I, I don't know if I have enough to give away yet, but um, I'm building that. <laughs> All right, very cool. Um, so I guess, so like Celia said, so she sent me... Um, or we were sort of brainstorming of proposals that we could submit for the conference of workshop ideas. And over the past few years, as being more in the supervisor administrative type role, I have come into contact more and more. My time, my work week time is being spent with other BCBAs, supervising them, mentoring them, um, or you know, even at our agency, we have multiple levels of BCBAs. So we have BCBAs who are in the homes developing the programming for our learners. And then we have BCBAs who are supervising them, which is Celia's role. And then I'm supervising sort of the, all everybody. Um, and so that has allowed me to come into contact with more opportunities of how am I delivering my supervision, although you're know, not necessarily in the context of field work hours, but just how am I helping people develop their skills and how am I helping people help other BCBAs develop their skills? And more and more often, it was coming to light for me that while our BCBAs were and are very skilled at applications of behavior analysis to our learners, 
it wasn't necessarily generalizing to uh, working with other BCBAs and teaching you know, outside of, again, behavioral skills training, which, again, I think be has become a bit uh, synonymous with, you know, how to do supervision. Well, you know, you do this package of instructions and feedback and modeling. But more than that, it's using the skills, strategies, principles that we know and use with our learners to teach new skills and applying those to our supervisees and whether they're therapists or other supervise other BCBAs that we're supervising. And from there, you know, the concepts that you outlined were sort of just a sampling. It was just us bringing hey, here are some examples of areas of behavior analysis that we know and use to teach kids with autism, kids without autism, maybe adults, different populations. But are we being mindful about using those same applications teaching our supervisees when we're trying to train people to become BCBAs? Are we using you know negative exemplars in our discrimination training? Are we proactively programming for generalization where we want to see the, the supervisee's skills being demonstrated? Are we um, simultaneously teaching them discrimination of where, you know, oh, I can generalize this skill to this population, but not too much because now I'm practicing outside the scope of my expertise and that discrimination? And are we being mindful about applying behavior analytic um, concepts to that framework. So that's sort of where the mind child of the workshop came from overarching. I see. I see. Um, sounds pretty neat. So I, I, I'm willing to bet that the listener who's driving around their car, walking their dog or, uh, you know, running on a treadmill or what have you right now is, is probably want some real, you know, kind of nuts and bolts with each one of these strands, if you will. So if you guys can maybe uh, take each one and, and maybe talk about some examples of some skills that you've demonstrated these with, with some of the, the BCBA trainees that you've worked with, I, I think that would be kind of like a fun area to, to really explore. Sure. Uh, so, sorry, what was the first one? It was discrimination training, I think. Yeah, that's, well, that's, that's what I have, yeah. But it's your power, it, it's your, it's your <laughs> show, so. Uh, I haven't slept well, more than three hours at a clip, so <laughs> just a little prompting is helpful, so I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, well, just the other day, I, I'll, I'll give one example, Laura, and then maybe uh, while I'm talking, you can um, think of the other ones. Um, so just the other day, I was spending more time providing non-examples of what extinction is um, to a supervisee. Um, than providing examples. And I think that we spend a lot, lot of time providing a few examples um, and they walk away thinking that they understand and can discriminate that concept. But we know that's not concept formation, right? We have to provide non-examples and examples so that they walk away being able to identify the critical features of that concept and also nice to have features of that concept. So I spent more time talking about what is not extinction and giving them lots of examples. Um, I, I give you one right now where I, I said, you know, what if, you know, mom sees her kid crying at the candy store and crying is maintained by access to candy. And she knows, you know, she doesn't want to reinforce that problem behavior. So she never gave him candy um, in the first place. Is that and as a result, crying got extinguished. Would that be a good example of extinction? And the answer would be no, because that behavior was never once reinforced, right? Um, that child no longer engages in crying to get candy because 
he has learned that crying is inefficient, right? It's not mediating any reinforcement, but that's not an example of extinction. Um, so I think that we need to spend more time going over the non-examples as well. Um, another, ex another example is differential reinforcement. You know, I've come across supervisees that, you know, think that differential reinforcement must compose of extinction and reinforcement. Um, and I actually have one supervisor that said, you know what, the student's elopement is maintained by attention. I can't not implement differential reinforcement on elopement. And I said, why not? And she said, well, because I cannot um, put elopement on extinction. I have to go attend to that student. And I said, that is true. You do have to get that student back to a safe place, but you can still provide differential reinforcement. And she didn't understand that you can provide lower quality of reinforcement for that problem behavior and higher quality of reinforcement for the alternative behavior. So, and she said, but you know, in the Cooper Heron Hewitt book, they gave an example of extinction. And in that example, one of the components is, um, I'm sorry, they gave, they gave an example of differential reinforcement. And one of the components, um, is extinction. So therefore, all differential reinforcement procedures must comprise of extinction. So you see how they learn one example, so limited examples, and as a result, they form this faulty stimulus control of what that concept is. Um, yeah, and I so think they, that's dangerous. So yeah, they assume it's part of an over, uh, overarching yes. treatment package. Right. When it, right. Obviously, in the, in the narrow sense, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be. Exactly, exactly. So again, it's discrimination training requiring us to present um, examples, but a good number of non-examples that is just slightly incorrect um, for them to develop this fine discrimination. And are you doing this kind of just conversationally in like a supervision meeting, or are you doing this uh, in, the, in the context of supervising in the target setting, you know, in the home with the BCBA? Uh, do you do this as a mixture of both? I'd like, give us some more detail about the the, the yeah. context in which this type of coaching occurs. I think it it, it needs to be in both settings. Um, you know, if you demonstrate the procedure of what to do during session with the learner, and you demonstrate precisely what needs to be done, so that's your SD. But you also want to demonstrate where you can vary, right? It's like the conversation curve, you know, to what extent can you vary to the left of that SD? To what extent can you vary to the right of that SD? And to what extent do you need to stop before you can say, you know what, you're doing it raw now. This is no longer what we're trying to do. Um, and if you think about that generalization gradient curve, it really speaks about um, Justin Leaf and colleagues when he talks about the progressive way to implement discrete trial instruction. And that's what he's talking about. To some extent, how do you vary your instruction? Or are you going to stick with your very rigid ways of implementing discrete trial? And Lauren, you can jump in um, anytime. <laughs> There's your prompt, Lauren. To, I don't want to go. Wake up, Lauren. <laughs> I kid, of uh, course. She's been listeners. to the listener. She's she's her eyes are open. I don't know. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, I'm totally here. Um, so I guess my kind of take home or take it to 
you know, the practice kind of idea as far as the discrimination training and the negative, uh, non-exemplars. So, um, for some of, um, my supervisees who have written functional behavior assessments or behavior intervention plans, um, target definitions where, so where they look to operationally define, um, some target behavior that they're looking to decrease, um, I'll often play around with coming up with, I guess, for lack of a better term, um, kind of being uh, a little bit snarky, but coming up with kind of some examples that I think fit into their criteria or their um, operational definition, but is clearly not what they're looking for. So, for example, they, you know, they might have a target that response of hitting that they're looking to decrease and they'll describe it as, you know, a hand coming into contact with another person's body part. And I'll say, oh, like giving a high five. Um, oh, like giving, you know, a fist bump. Oh, um, you know, shaking hands, you know, something like that. And making them think about being more specific, but also sometimes actually including some of those non-exemplars in their documents to be able to outline some of those non-exemplars. So, I, you know, trying to have people think more specifically about not only what's inclusive of what you're trying to outline, but also, you know, what's, what's not. Deciding to take the next step in your career is a big decision. Whether it's moving from a registered behavioral technician to a board-certified behavior analyst or learning how to apply behavior analysis within a school setting. The University of Cincinnati Online Behavior Analysis Program can be a rewarding way to advance your career. Gain cutting-edge marketability, knowledge, and skills to increase your earning potential, all while improving the quality of life for others. The University of Cincinnati, a premier research and higher learning institution, ranks in the top tier of America's best colleges by U.S. News & World Report and it's fully accredited through the Higher Learning Commission. So if this sounds interesting to you, please visit behavioranalysisuc.online for more information. And what was the second? You threw me a two-parter. There was some example there. Is that it? Yeah, well, I think that, I think that gets, gets to the point of uh, you know, being thorough with your supervisees in terms of explaining a concept and you know, being careful to... Uh, provide lots of examples, and then also uh, show where things don't apply with you know through the through those non examples. I like the, I like that uh, high five uh, versus uh, you know hitting. Um, I always like to the uh, uh, the missed uh, uh, aggressive attempt as well. You know uh, that's something that that I um, that confuses people sometimes. It's like well he. he he didn't actually hit me. <laughs> well, you were quick enough to get out of the way, <laughs> but uh, you know, does that count as aggressive behavior? You know, and uh, you know, so there's a bunch of there's a lot of fun you can have with that. You know, with you know, a lot of fun with hitting, I guess. Uh, so, if someone's listening to this out of context, they probably think we're we're a, a bit crazy here, but um, that's okay. So let's uh, uh, let's talk about uh, programming for generalization then. Um, so what what are the ways in which you emphasize that in your super vision of trainees? Um, so for our learners in our agency, we have a document that we use to help our staff be mindful of proactively programming 
um, for generalization in their initial teaching and target uh, instructions. So things like using multiple exemplars, inclusive of non-exemplars in instruction, multiple and varied SDs, varied people, varied places, teaching loosely, um, um, using common stimuli, both from the natural environment into maybe a more controlled setting, and then vice versa, if necessary, bringing some of that stimuli from where you taught it to the natural environment to help support generalization for our learners. So we took that document and spun it all toward, again, supervisees. So if you're teaching a supervisee uh, lacked um, data using um, momentary time sampling, doing those tasks in a, maybe a controlled setting, but then doing it across varied settings. Can they do it, you know, sitting in your office, but then like you had just referenced earlier, you know, are you doing it when you're doing these one-to-one -one sessions or are you actually doing it in the applied settings where you're going to be working? Well, great. Somebody might be able to run a timer when they're sitting at a desk, um, you know, staring at a, staring at you or staring at that timer. But when you actually are putting them in the classroom, when there's 30 kids going, are they forgetting to look down? Are they um, getting distracted? Are they, you know, what any errors that they might be making. So um, teaching as best we can, obviously there are a lot of limitations or there can be limitations to where we see our supervisees. But again, just being really mindful that, that you know, just don't assume that your supervisee is generalizing it to an applied setting where you want or where they're gonna need to be demonstrating that skill the same way we would with our learners. We wouldn't teach them you know, to label um, a household item on a card in their basement and then assume that they're going to be able to tact refrigerator in the kitchen um, in contacts with their parents. So, you know, can the supervisee do these skills in the context of different types of learners with different supervisors in different settings um, with various SDs? Can, you know, the setting trigger or set the... Um, so the opportunity that the supervisee is going to identify the appropriate um, data collection procedure or um, strategy to use to decrease um, or de-escalate a maladaptive behavior while taking into account all the environmental factors and things that are going on at that time. Um, and just being, again, as mindful and proactive in our supervision as we can um, to set our supervisees up for success when they do come into contact with the need for demonstrating that generalization. Cool, cool. I think I saw a slide that said something about bad generalization. Can you guys talk about that? What does that mean? Sure. Um, thanks. Um, so, um, kind of two parts. So first thinking about overgeneralization. So as I had kind of referenced earlier, I think that or as I was developing, we were developing this presentation and workshop, um, you know, I was going through, you know, we want to see generalization. We want there to be um, novel responses. We want there to be um, outside the box thinking by our supervisees, but can it be taken too far? So, you know, we want to have our supervisees be able to work with students that are, um, maybe a little bit older or a little bit younger than the clients that we worked with them with. Um, that's not right English, but you understand what I mean. Um, and, but you know, how much is too far? So if you supervise somebody with 
working with a learner that was five, is it generalization that they then can go work with a seven-year-old or is it practicing outside their scope of expertise where they've been received supervision? Um, maybe seven is okay, but would 10 year old be okay? Would a 15 year old be okay? Where does that, like Celia was saying, you know, where does that generalization gradient come to its end where you want your supervisee to then not generalize, but discriminate and say, hey, I didn't receive training with this particular type of learner or in this setting or on that task, right? When we do supervision, there's so many task items that it's very lucky if you get to every single one of them in such a thorough way. So there might be some task items that you actually never did cover in your supervision. And we want the supervisee to be able to identify that, oh, hey, I didn't receive supervision on that particular task. And it's outside the scope of what I received training on. Versus, you know what, we covered this a little bit, and I think I can generalize that. So, you know, it's, I think it's a very fine line. So we just sort of wanted to point that out to our audience at the time that, you know, we want to see generalization, but it can't be just a carte blanche to go out and do anything with anyone, anywhere that you've ever need to do behavior analysis, because that wouldn't be appropriate either. Got it, got it. Uh, do you guys have like a supervision meeting agenda and that prompts a supervisor to kind of probe for for these kind of pillars, if you will, that you guys have established or at least call it uh, uh, or collect it or whatever? Well, it's funny. I'll, I'll let Celia kind of jump in. She's nodding, but um, kind of along or simultaneous with developing this workshop, Celia and I have been working on a supervision course that we're offering through ABLG that it was really very helpful. I think Celia can probably speak to this more where outlining this workshop allowed us to be, again, really mindful of being including these things and including probes and pretest, post-tests and um, maintenance checks and being really thoughtful about scope and sequence of our task items. And, you know, we haven't covered that in a while, so let's bring it back and make sure that it's something in our learner's repertoire the same way we would with kids that we work with or adults or whoever your population is. But again, when we're thinking about our supervisees, I felt like a lot of times we would cover a task item and then a year and a half later, they're still in supervision, but we don't know why are we assuming that they still have the skills that we covered you know, a year and a half ago without actually going back in and checking that they actually they do, that they've maintained. Um, sorry, so I'll, I'll throw that over to Celia, but I, I think that it allowed us to include some of these factors in our course. Yes. Um, yeah, you, you explained it quite well. Um, so we, we looked at the task list and we categorized and we put together task list items and we designed curriculum modules to address those task list items. Um, always striving to apply them in real life settings with clients, but for um, situations where there are no opportunities to do so. We've created, um, we think outside the box and created, you know, exercises to play and to demonstrate those types of skills. Um, yeah, uh, I think it was, I think we took a year to do this, right, Lauren? I think it was um, last year, most of last year we created this. And so we're fine tuning it as we have people testing it out. Um, and of course, um, you know, to any kind of curriculum, to the extent we have to individualize it 
um, to the candidate, right? Um, based on what kind of skill sets they are coming into us. And so, you know, we always start with taking a baseline. We assess their skills um, and their and their competency um, as baselines, and we continue to do so and probe to see progress. Um, if we don't see progress, then we address the barriers um, for those for for why progress is not being made. Um, pretty cool. So, do, is this course uh, something that that you guys? are using internally to your group, or is this going to be something for sale outside of that? Uh, and if so, I'm sure there's lots of people who'd want to get their hands on it. Uh, that's a good question. Right now, we are um, just running our first cohort through, so we're um, fine-tuning some components of it, um, both with staff from ABLG that are in progress toward their BCBA and some non-ABLG individuals who are working toward it. And hopefully if we get good feedback and seem successful for people passing, then I think, you know, it will be hopefully something that we'll be able to offer for purchase, I suppose. Okay. All right. Cool. Stay tuned, folks. Um, so, all right. Uh, so let's uh, let's talk about concept formation. What's uh, what are the ways in which you uh, discuss this, train this, etc. in the in the context of supervision? Lauren, oh, I'm sorry. Hello. Yeah. No, I'm here. All right. Um, I think so, it goes back to and several just, things. Just for the yeah, listener, too, there's a couple of Skype hiccups here and there, too, that I'm getting on my end. So there's a little that might be yes. uh, causing some of the, the, the delays here also. So Yes, for a, second, for a second, both of your screens uh, were frozen. That's right. So it I probably sure. froze in some weird-looking face. That's always what happens to me. <laughs> what happens to me when you, you know. Yes. Um, so with concept formation, you know, Jolene talks about how even doing matching to sample and providing multiple examplers is not going to be sufficient to teach someone concepts, right? So, you know, going back to, you know, the precise definition, concept formation, it's the, uh, the, the skill to discriminate, um, you know, stimuli between response classes, right? Between stimulus classes and to generalize, right? To generalize stimuli within a stimulus class. Um, so Joe Jolene was talking about, you know, in order for us to build concept formation, it takes a lot of examples and it takes a lot of non-examplers. And you have to be very careful in selecting your non-examplers. So if I am selecting a distractor that is vastly discriminating, vastly different than the SD, that's not going to build concept formation. I have to select my distractors to be just slightly wrong, you know, so that fine discrimination can be established. Um, so I think in our supervision, um, whether it's remotely um, or in person, whether it's with a client or not with a client, that's what we have to do. We have to demonstrate or present in conversation or present scenarios or demonstrate procedures that are correct and then those that are just slightly incorrect so that they can build this concept formation on a, of a process, of a term, um, of a procedure. Real quick, I want to tell you about the upcoming four-day ACT Bootcamp for Behavior Analyst Workshop that's going down on November 7th through 10th 
in sunny Fort Lauderdale, Florida. It'll feature act experts like Steve Hayes, Ruth Ann Rayfeld, Tom Sabo, Jonathan Tarbox, and more. This workshop is designed to provide behavior analysts a foundational understanding of ACT, and it will cover the following. Parent training, staff management and development, organizational work, work with developmentally delayed populations and the chronically mentally ill, and educational settings with special needs students. By attending this workshop, you'll gain a deeper understanding of the roots of ACT, as well as learn the skills and techniques you can use with clients and stakeholders all while staying within your scope of practice. This workshop is intensive. Over the course of four days, you'll earn 32 Type 2 CEs, including four hours of ethics and three hours of supervision CEs. So if you're ready to take the next step, head on over to praxiscet.com forward slash BO podcast. Again, that's praxiscet.com forward slash BO podcast. And use the code BOP50 to save at checkout. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Is, is there a particular example? It takes a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah it's easy to do the very the extremely dissimilar one. Um, that's, that's why I was so hesitant, you know, when you asked, like, you know, are you guys going to make this curriculum available? Um, I'm hesitant about it because, um, and I always feel that, you know, the t- you know, and this is something that Shoke and Rosa Asalas, uh, am I pronouncing her name correctly? Jerry Shoke at all. They were talking about like the, the two main critical factors to improving um, positive outcomes for a learner, the instructional approach that you select, but more importantly, is the competency of the person implementing that instruction. So I'm always hesitant, like if you put out this curriculum, it's only as good as the person implementing it do you know what i mean sure so yeah so it takes so much time to just think about like i always think about you know and all my supervision sessions are all very different um even though we follow we have a guideline about what to teach but how do we teach it and it's very different it's it's all individualized to the skill sets of my supervisees um, and of my students well, that's a that's a fair point, uh, or the many points you made are, are certainly fair, and I, I very much appreciate the fact that you guys are gonna more or less bench test this with your with the, the folks that you're directly working with before even considering. Um, yeah, sorry, guys. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> of, of distributing it more widely than that, you know, so that that's definitely admirable. Anyone, um, and 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 certainly the the issue of the competency of the instructor is, is huge so um the 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 cautious approach is uh is very much appreciated um uh any other thoughts about this aspect of supervision the concept formation piece before we change gears here um i think and a lot of um the concepts that we talked about at the workshop i think there was a lot of you know kind of overlap in the sense of you know discrimination training leads to concept formation. So they're not necessarily um, independent. There's a lot of overlap. And we talked about equivalence-based instruction, where there's Mm -hmm. further overlap between these um, strategies and and concepts themselves. So I think that for, again, concept formation, we also wanted to really be 
thoughtful and mindful about the different ways in which information needs to be and can be, I guess, synthesized. I don't know if that's necessarily the best word, but, you know, that could somebody do discrete trial instruction? Can they explain discrete trial instru instruction? Can they identify errors in other people's um, delivery of discrete trial instruction uh, to a nuance, you know, fine error? Um, can they, um, you know, just all of those elements that, you know, sort of combine into a concept rather than just being able to do it, but not teach it, teach it, but not do it well. Um, and being, again, mindful of and how that sort of lays into generalization as well. So just being thoughtful about all these different ways in which these tasks will need to be demonstrated by supervisees on the other end of them having the certification themselves. Got it. Got it. All right. So let's turn to one of my pet topics that's been talked about very, very frequently in the podcast, precision teaching. So where is this? Where does this come in and, and how you guys uh, work with your trainees? That's a good question. Yeah. I, when I was, uh, you know, a, a supervisee at the time, I actually did precision teaching and I charted myself um, doing certain procedures um, of the street trial instructions, you know, error correction procedure, um, interspersal, mass trial. And I actually did that. And my friends used to make fun of me. I said, listen, the more fluent, the more muscle memory it is with me, the smoother I'm going to ha you know, conduct my sessions. Um, the more efficient I'm going to conduct my sessions, the lesser problem behaviors the learner um, will engage in, you know, because I'm keeping those trials really fast and really smooth, um, the lesser downtime that I would create. So I said, you know what, we don't do enough of this. You know, we do a lot of BST, but there are certain skills that the supervisee has to go off and practice this, you know, um, and that's why precision teaching can, can help. Um, I have a, I have a, at the time she, she's a BCBA now, but she was a supervisee. Um, she was actually practicing how to implement um, the tolerance response training and compliance uh, training of the ISCA. And I can tell you, it was really smooth in session. And I said, how'd you get so good? I just kind of introduced this to you last week. And she said, I practiced. I practice, you know, providing that SD. I practice providing that prompt. And I was like, you know, that's that's awesome. You know, we don't do that enough. You practice like outside of session, like practice, like in, like in a simulation of sorts. Yes. Wow, pretty neat. Oh, so, going back to what you're talking about, like you you said you were you. you so did you did you so you charted your error corrections and 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 interspersals on a standard acceleration chart? Yes, and at that time, again, I was a student of Beth Glassberg. That's what we had to do. Um, we had to chart. There was no way about it. Charting was part of your life. You have to chart. You have to chart the terms you learn. You have to chart everything. Um, so I guess I got lucky in the sense that I got to experience that um, that part of the school, that schooling piece, um, where my my professors was you know using the chart. Did you did you develop like fluency aims and things like that? As it related to those different pinpointed yes. skills, and I always have to. I always complain to. Uh, yeah, I always complain to Beth Glassberg. I said, "Who make these aims up? 
they're like super high. And she's like, well, complain it to Rick Cabina. <laughs> <laughs> what? His aims are quite high. What? Uh, so h- how would you develop that, those for? I mean, I, I have to imagine the number of error corrections would you probably vary a, based uh, on the learner. You know, yes, you it, know, you, some 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 learners will be more error prone than others, perhaps. Yes. Uh, and um, yeah, so I, I'm just uh, just yeah, my mind you, is spinning right now trying to figure yeah. out how to how to put this into practice. Yeah, so your aim, you have to gather your aims from someone who's really fluent at this. Um, you know, Lauren, you met uh, when you were um, at, was at Queens College. You met someone who was like an octopus, right? You said. Uh, the way yeah, she was. Well, no, yeah. I was at Queens College, but it was one of my first therapy cases that I um, I went to go see um, a, a potential client and he was in therapy with a therapist who was, I describe her as an octopus. She was amazingly fluent at her delivery. She was delivering um, interspersing different types of verbal operant programming. She was delivering uh, reinforcement on, I believe, there was a skill acquisition token board on a varied schedule, very ratio schedule that she had going in her head. There was a behavior reduction token board or reinforcement schedule. She was um, providing edible reinforcements that he was earning in this little uh, Tupperware kind of cup, and she was also providing him sort of freebies on again in a schedule that was going on in her head, and it what looked beautiful. It looked like art where her hands were just going and her mouth was going, and this kid was rocking and rolling with her. Um, they were into that behavior chain of the therapist and client were just so fluent that that's always the the gold standard in my head of, you know, again, you know, can we deliver discrete trial instruction? Sure. But if it's going to be with these really long inter-trial intervals, if it's mm-hmm. going to be with errors of on the therapist part, like Celia said, you know, you're going to potentially, depending upon the learner, of course, set yourself up for maladaptive behavior or just distracted behavior. You're not going to get really engaged learning and, to a certain extent, it also adds to the fun of the therapy session. If you're sitting there as the client just waiting as the therapist trying to figures out what the SD they're going to deliver at that moment is, sure, anything else in that environment is probably more interesting. So if you want to have an engaged, fun session, um, I think that some of these task items that, again, we train our supervisees in, in to be really fluent, high responding, um, can really help with just the flow of your session and the fun that you're going to have in it. You know, it's such a beautiful thing when you see someone that skilled, just cranking away. It's, it's just awesome. And you just wish you could clone that person. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's always fun to see someone who at that high level of, of, uh, so intimidating on your day one. I hadn't even worked with a single client yet at that point. I was like, Oh my goodness, that's what I'm supposed to be able to do. I don't think I ever could. And I mean, I don't know that I, I, I never charted my own, uh, delivery, but, um, I'd like to say that I got to a point that I was maybe sort of as fluent as she was, but, um, going back to the presentation, I think our, our 
message to the audience at the time, you know, sort of was, you know, there are going to be task list items that you cover in your supervision that do not need to be done with high fluency. No one is going to sit there and rapid fire ask you to identify research designs that would be most appropriate to uh, run for a specific dependent variable or independent variable that you're trying to, you know, look at. Um, no one's going to rapid fire present you with graphs and ident make you, you know, tact what kind of a design they are. But for the task items where you need to be in the trenches making these split, decision, split second decisions, you need to be able to respond as if it's second nature. It's a sec it's, you know, you're not translating in your head. You practice this to such an extent that it's maintained and it is just coming off of coming off very easily and quickly to you. And, um, you know, charting, I think, would be a really impressive way to do that. Nice, nice. All right. Um, one thing we touched on very briefly early on, uh, and I want to come back to is, uh, and I think you guys spent a little bit of time on this in, in your uh, presentation, is um, using relational frame theory and um, Celia, I know you just you did like a six hour workshop, if I'm not mistaken, in uh, in RFT at uh, yes, at ABAI. With, uh, yeah, with Dermot Bonds Holmes and Yvonne Bonds Holmes. Yeah, so, that was um, that was amazing. Yeah, so <clears throat> so did. tell us a little bit about um, uh, how how you incorporate that, and uh, you know, did you t you know, I'm sure you probably took home tons of information from that workshop as well, and you know, so. If there are any changes based off of that that new knowledge that you've gained at the workshop, you know, uh, if, if you could share with us, that would be great also. Yeah. So I want to give you a background about, like, how do I even come up with this idea, right? You know, why, why do you decide to look at RFT and, um, you know, using it to teach behavior analysis? Like, how did you come up with that? And I, you know, like every single um, question, right, experimental question, it starts with the problem, right? So... Um, about back in 2013, I was preparing, um, some materials for Dr. Beth Glasper to do a, um, a study group for those people who are, for the individuals who are preparing for the exam. Um, and as I was preparing for the materials, I got to study with a lot of people as well. <clears throat> I met many people who were able to recall or regurgitate a definition which is great because that in itself, um, it's no small task, right? Um, I even got people to be able to provide an example for, uh, for that definition. And again, that's even better. But then there were questions um, that they were missing, they were not getting right on. And I said, well, why are you not getting these questions correct? And what these questions are asking is, they're not really asking about a particular term, but what they're asking is, it's the relationship between the terms. They want to, you know, what is the difference? What is the relationship between high P sequence presentation and behavioral momentum? What is that, what is that frame? Um, and so that's like a whole other level of, um, of skill right, of our science. Um, and then at the same time, I was reading different articles and I came across this article written by Phil Heinlein um, at Temple University. And 
uh, for those of you who haven't, you know, read his stuff, he's a really beautiful writer. He writes beautifully. Um, and I, I love all his stuff. And he talks about how behavior analysis is a conceptual, conceptual system of network, making up of processes and procedures that are interrelated with one another. And it is only understanding this interrelations between our terms and processes that we really understand behavior analysis. And at the same time, this whole RFT thing um, was blooming, right? Like everyone is into RFT. And I'm learning about RFT separately and I just make this thought and connection. I said, oh my God, look at what Phil Heinlein is saying. Even though he never really mentioned RFT, I said, that's RFT. That's talking about the relations and the frames between our terms, between our processes. Um, so that's that's where my thought came in. Um, yeah, did I lose you guys so far? <laughs> so uh, no, uh, no, and I, um, yeah, I, I haven't. Um, I don't think I've read any of Heinlein stuff, or at least not in a long, long time. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad to hear he writes beautifully because I do want to. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged to. to look up this article uh and as a complete aside uh uh one of the things i do know about uh uh him is that uh he sang a uh this is at a conference oh gosh it must have been 15 20 years ago where um in front of like the entire maryland association for behavior analysis he sang a version of west side story uh, um, and, and, uh, Maria, he was the behaviorist and I forget the male, pro, you know, uh, um, Tony. what's that? Tony. Yeah. Tony was the cognitive uh, psychologist and he had this whole kind of parody of the, uh, the West side story and he sang it acapella in front of hundreds wow. of people, which definitely, uh, I think takes a lot of, uh, a lot of guts, I guess, you know, but it was really funny too. So anyway, yeah. that's my Phil. <laughs> yeah. Um, Apropos then, of nothing, you know, but you know. And then just you know, yeah. I guess you can see I'm kind of passionate about this this particular area. Yeah. Um, and so, like, if you really understand this conceptual system of network of behavior analysis, um, that's that's the critical piece that makes someone to become, you know, a behavior analyst to use critical thinking. Um, and, you know, Justin Leave and, and, and his work, I, I love his work too. And he talks about, you know, how, you know, becoming a behavior analyst, what you have to do is it's not just implementing, right, a set of procedures or a set of cur curriculum. It's about identifying what to do when, when things don't go your way, when the learner is not making progress, even when you are implementing the curriculum as per treatment integrity, as per described, what do you do then? How do you modify your teaching procedures? And it goes back to understanding this conceptual network. It goes back to identifying the functional relation between environmental variables and what's influencing the learner's behaviors. So this is what I always, you know, try to teach our supervisees. You know, I rather teach you the principles and the theory behind it and teach you to identify the functional relations between your procedures, your intervention, and the learner's behavior, that is much more critical and important than for me to teach you the task analysis of running the VB map. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. Love it. 
That sounds like advice for the newly minted BCBA. Also, that would be very much uh, worthwhile uh, heeding. So, uh, as as we're wrapping wrapping up our conversation here, uh, um, what, what what advice do you guys have that you haven't dispensed already? Because this has all been aimed at you know people in that general area or, uh, or general point on the timeline of their careers, perhaps pre. Pre BCBA, but you know, kind of in the same neck of the woods. So, uh, what advice would you have for the uh, for the newly minted, um, Lauren? Let's start with you. Uh, two things, and hopefully, I can remember <laughs> both of them. Um, I think first, it would be on my first day of school. My teacher, uh, graduate ABA program. My professor said, "Look around your." world look around your home school and just be really thoughtful about how behavior and the environment are interplaying with one another constantly um, evolving and being impacted back and forth and for newly meant to be VAs, I would encourage everyone to continue to keep that those eyes open so again in the ABA study group I think a lot of times the people that seem to be the those that have the best grasp of behavior analysis are not those that are only thinking about it in the scope of, again, you know, the specific classroom or a specific client or context where they're, quote unquote, using ABA. It's the people that are looking around the world and labeling and applying and seeing behavior analysis every day, all day, throughout their days. And not that we need to be super nerdy geeks all the time, but just every so often continuing to try to be in that mindset because once we start thinking about, you know, ABA just being this therapy for a specific population, um, we're looking at that pigeonhole that, you know, we find ourselves in. So I think that for us to be the ones that to continue to just really emphasize that ABA and behavior analysis is everything, it is everywhere and continuing to keep that in their minds. Um, and second is kind of going along with the theme of this workshop is, like Celia said, I think in the very beginning, please, if possible, find a mentor, find somebody who you respect, that you trust. It can be a colleague, maybe a classmate, maybe somebody online that in the ABA study group that you've connected with, just somebody that you can brainstorm with, talk to, be you know, candid and transparent. I think our field has a lot of challenges. A lot of times we're working in homes or we're the only BCBA in a school district working with very intense learners that have lots of challenges. We have the weight of the world on our shoulders and having a mentor that you can just either vent to or try to come to with questions, you know, so helpful in the long term. Um, you know, we're getting so many, so many new BCBAs in our field, and that number of certifi certified individuals is continuing to grow. I would hate to see the number of people that leave the field also continue to grow exponentially because of burnout, because people aren't finding professional supports that might be available to them. Um, there might be not just taking people up on those opportunities. All right, cool. Celia? Um, well, just, you know, in addition to what Lauren has said, are, are these advice for minted 
BCBAs or supervisees? Well, let's go with the newly minted. Yeah, let's go with the newly minted. But you know, I think a lot of the, what you were saying before we kind of switch gears to this uh, kind of closing segment here was also applicable. So if that kind of already, you know, so um, but you could take the question in any direction you like. So okay, thank you. All right, so I'm going to give some advice to the supervisees. Um, take your take your supervision seriously. Um, don't put it as a back burner, invest in it. The classroom can only teach you so much. Um, it can only teach you the jargons, right? Um, but it is in your supervision that you learn to apply these, um, not this knowledge. It is in supervision that you synthesize this knowledge. Um, so take your supervision very seriously. Um, try to get multiple supervision experience. Don't work with one learner, two learners, three learners, one supervisor, one setting. Talk about multiple examplers. That would not be multiple examplar, right? Training. Um, And then for the minted um, BCBAs, I would say um, don't be afraid to reach out to people in the field. Uh, um, People are very generous with their time if they do have the time. That's been my experience. Don't be afraid. In today's, you know, times with the technology and social media, everyone is at your fingertips do not be afraid. Do not be shy to invest in learning. So that's that's my advice. All right. All right. Yeah. Well, wise words to end on. Uh, Lauren and Celia, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been uh, a real fun and uh, enlightening episode on supervision. Thanks, Matt. Thank you so much, Thank Matt. you for listening to the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria. You can find Matt's notes on this episode at www.behavioralobservations.com. We also invite you to stay connected with us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash behavioral observations and on Twitter at Behavior Podcast.